This edition of Save and Woke Afterthoughts is sponsored by me. Has this thought ever crossed your mind while listening to one of your favorite podcasts? Man, I can do this. Guess what? You can. If you have an idea for a great show that you think there's an audience for, more than likely, you're right. However, starting a podcast can seem pretty daunting if you're new to this. That's why I created my course, How to Start Your Podcast. In this class, I break down all you need to do to start recording, editing, and publishing your podcast today. No need to fear, and most importantly, no need to procrastinate. If you're like me, your desire to podcast comes way before you actually record your first show. I want to shorten the time between the inspiration and the manifestation of your great idea. This course is not bait to get you to sign up for some more expensive course where I really tell you what you need to know. I literally hold your hand and lay out step-by-step everything you need to get started. Topics covered are recording equipment, editing software, logo design, hosting platforms, plus a special bonus for all you new podcasters. And if that weren't enough, the course is wrapped up with a Q&A session for you to ask for whatever info you need for your unique production situation. This course includes all the knowledge I've gained over three years and five seasons of podcasting. And right now I'm offering it at a discounted rate of $20 to listeners of the Saved and Woke podcast. The first session will be held this Saturday, December 12th at 3 p.m. via Zoom. To register, email me at juanondemand.courses at gmail.com. Again, that's juanondemand.com. Dot courses at gmail.com to register for how to start your podcast. Listen today, podcast tomorrow. You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. Yes, I am. What up, everybody? It's your boy, MSW. That's Mr. Saved and Woke, also known as Juan Enrique Tuse, here with another edition of Saved and Woke Afterthoughts. Now, in the last episode, I was talking with my man, Keith Woodley, about his inclusion in the documentary Chicago at the Crossroad, as well as his work at Firehouse Community Arts Center in chicago we went over a lot and so as usual with these afterthoughts i'm just going to jump right in so at one point keith mentioned his uh, experience growing up in the south side of chicago and he was talking about just how rough it was growing up in a single parent home and he mentioned one thing in particular regarding the gangs and what it was like being really a really young kid growing up in that environment at one point he said yeah, so you have all this violence going on and it's, you're really, you have a lot of reasons pretty much to want to join a gang even at a young age. And he was like, yeah, you know, gangs start trying to, to recruit you and everything. And in that moment, especially listening to it, I was like, nah, I don't know anything about that. That is not my life. Um, but, you know, all jokes aside, I am truly thankful that Keith made it through that situation and that others like him have gone through it and have able have been able to to organize 
into efforts like Firehouse and and more. But it also really breaks my heart. And I hope it breaks yours just to know that there are still young people in Chicago, in other parts of America, in other parts of the world, living in the same reality and worse. And as believers, I think our hearts should be broken, uh, not just to feel sad, so just so that we continuously, just like we do at the end of every episode, to bring these issues to God. And so I encourage you to do that today, whether it's for people in Chicago, whether it's for people with similar backgrounds as the ones we talked about uh, in in your local area. Like, please continue to pray. And as I admonish you all to do this, I am, you know, receiving this uh, myself. I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I feel like I'm praying enough. And I think it's always a good, there's always room for a reminder and encouragement uh, for prayer. There's no way you can pray too much. So please, because we we need, there's a lot of people talking, a lot of people doing, not enough people praying. So yeah. Moving on, I mentioned uh, Levittown as I think one of the first suburbs in the nation and in Chicago. And I was half wrong about that. So Levittown was the first suburb built in America, but it was not built in Chicago. It was built in Long Island, New York. But the location doesn't really matter because its history still illustrates the the point that I was trying to get across, which is that over years and years, uh, beginning in this case after the Second World War, uh, white people organized their organized their communities they built their communities they built these suburbs um and allow and and, and restricted access to the desirable community which obviously was white people and to illustrate that fact even further i have I'm going to read you all an excerpt, a short excerpt this time. I think last time I read an excerpt, it was from a book, and I read maybe like 10 pages. But this is just a few paragraphs from uh, an article on history, from I guess the History Channel or History.com. It's entitled, How the GI Bill's Promise Was Denied to a Million Black World War II Veterans. And the GI Bill, it says, was the, promised prosperity to veterans. So why didn't black Americans benefit? And a lot of this, a lot of the text that I'm reading is from the documentary that I mentioned and that I included a link for in the last episode. And I'll make sure I do it again here. This first bit is regarding the GI Bill. While the GI Bill's language did not specifically exclude African-American veterans from its benefits, It was structured in a way that ultimately shut doors for the 1.2 million black veterans who had bravely served their country during World War II in segregated ranks. 
when lawmakers began drafting the GI Bill in 1944. Some Southern Democrats, Democrats feared that returning black veterans would use public sympathy for veterans to advocate against Jim Crow laws. To make sure the GI Bill largely benefited white people, the Southern Democrats drew on tactics they had previously used to ensure that the New Deal helped as few black people as possible. During the drafting of the law, the chair of the House Veterans Committee, Mississippi Congressman John Rankin, played hardball and insisted that the program be administered by individual states instead of the federal government. He got his way. Rankin was known for his virulent racism. He defended segregation, opposed interracial marriage, and had even proposed legislation to confine, then deport every person with Japanese heritage during World War II. So even in this excerpt, and definitely the rest of this article, and the rest of the documentary linked in the description, it makes it clear that the absence of black people in suburban communities and their eventual concentration in ghettos and projects, it has nothing to do with a flaw in the black people themselves, but I mean, really in the racist white politicians who were in power at the time in the communities that they that they represented and one thing that i always like to point out is the fact that this congressman congressman rankin made sure that individual states administered the gi bill instead of the federal government and i always well i've often brought up and I want to continually do it because I don't know when people are coming in that like whenever people are talking about states rights that's what is known as a dog whistle to to racism or to racist to white supremacists to bigots and it's a dog whistle because you know like dog whistles when you blow it into a dog whistle it makes sound but you can't you can't hear it unless you have listened to it with certain equipment or you happen to be a dog, all right? And saying things like states' rights, it serves as a dog whistle because although it is, it is subliminal racist terminology because what states... When people are advocating for states' rights, what they're saying is we don't want the government to force us to administer any sort of social program that can uplift or improve the lives of black people or people of color or whatever out group. And so they advocate for states' rights to run themselves, which sounds good, but is really just a way for the states that want to remain racist to to do so. So I highly suggest reading this entire article and watching the documentary because it just gives more, more backgrounds to the conversation that 
well, not just the conversation that Keith and I have, but just to the state that so many black communities find themselves in. Uh, again, I mentioned in the podcast of people blaming black people for black people's problems, but knowledge like this, facts like this, historical data like this just really overturns the arguments that the reason black communities are in such disarray, that so many black communities are in such disarray is due simply to the inferiority of black people themselves. And the last thing I'll make about this, the last point I'll make about this was one that was really simple. Nobody, it wasn't in a, it's not in a, in an article or an academic journal, but someone just said this to me once and I thought it was the, one of the most brilliant things that I ever heard. I said, okay, look, you can, you don't have to be a researcher or a sociologist to, to know that the narrative saying that black people are violent criminals who can't take care of their communities is a lie because if that were true, then all commu- all black communities would be crime-ridden or at least more crime-ridden than the neighborhoods or communities of other races, but definitely white people. But that's not the case. Crime and I guess the I guess the look of poverty, the dilapidated buildings and whatnot, is a factor not of race, but of employment, of socioeconomic status. And so, if if black people just in general were more violent and more prone to criminal behavior, so that that would mean that middle class and upper class rich black people would just have this unshakable criminal itch that they just had to scratch and so all of our communities every single black community would just be ridden with crime and that's simply not the case a lot of our uh, crime ridden and drug ridden communities are primarily uh, black or or have high populations of people of color, but not all of them. And so for this assertion to be true, that black people are just (laughs) deficient, then it would have to be true everywhere. And it's not the case. So basically where black people are employed, where black people have access to resources and education, hmm, some way or another that criminal activity seems to to dissipate and they don't want you to focus on this because that's this the truth for anyone where where white people are lacking in resources and education and social support crime increases most crime is opportunistic and fueled by desperation and who are the people most likely to be at that point of desperation, people who are poor, people who are struggling financially, and people who aren't just having, experiencing an instance of financial struggle, but 
who have been living in prolonged states of of financial depravity. The next and final point that I'll highlight is uh, just that there were multiple points when Keith talked about walking with them in reference to his work at the firehouse, walking with the young men who were the participants in the program. And I think that's huge. I think that there would be so much more understanding, compassion, and justice in our nation if we would walk with people and get to know them, get to know who they are, understand where they're coming from, truly understand the circumstances that they're living in and just who they are just as individuals. I think there would be more more justice not not even just in uh, in America, but in the church, if we did more of that, like we have to, in general, our like Western culture is super super, and I would say demonically individualistic, to the point that we can go to church with people for years and years, and never learn their names. Like that was my story. Like in my home church, there's people who have gone there for the same amount of time or at least like for, for at least a decade whose name that I never learned. I never learned anything about them and they never learned anything about me. And worse, I never even felt a desire to get to know who that person was. And that definitely extends to people in communities that we see as other from us, as different from us, as outside of, of our world. And like Keith and the people at at Firehouse come from that community. And so there's a special connection and uh, a drive that they have to engage in that work. But it's going to take more than that. Like, I don't, I don't, especially as believers, if we call ourselves believers, we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to relate to somebody's experience or have barely been saved from the save experience to, to have compassion on people right? I mean, Jesus was the most removed out of all of us. Like Jesus was in heaven. He's part of the Trinity, couldn't be no more perfect. And yet he had compassion on us. As believers, I don't think we have to create that compassion in us. I think we just have to embrace that compassion in us. Because if we, if you are a believer, then the Holy Spirit resides in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. The one who had compassion on us. The one who died for us. And so I... What, um, I myself, I'm trying to do what I can to walk with others. To be more mindful of others who are in situations that I have never had to deal with, uh, who are in racial and ethnic groups that are different from my own to be able to walk out this compassion and to truly do good and seek justice for all, not just for people who look like me are from where I'm from or talk the way I talk. So yeah, I hope this edition of Saved 
and woke afterthoughts has blessed you all you may have noticed that these afterthoughts and the previous episode came a little later than they usually do and if you would like to help keep the show coming regularly and keep the show increasing in quality and increasing in the variety of content consider becoming a patron and supporting us directly on patreon.com backslash saved and woke again that's patreon.com backslash saved and woke with your support i'll be able to gain more high quality equipment get editors to help me edit episodes and get them out faster and with more regularity to you all again that's www.patreon.com slash saved and woke to become a patron thank you so so much for taking the time to listen and thank you for the support you've all given me so far i really appreciate seeing all the downloads um, of course becoming a patron would be the next step but i really really appreciate everything on all the support that you've given the show up to this point remember to email me at juanondemand.courses at gmail.com for to register for the how to start your podcast webinar and until next time y'all know what to do keep the faith and stay woke Thank you.